Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. In the Byzantine liturgical calendar, this particular Sunday observes the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Now, there's another time during the liturgical calendar of the Byzantine Church where we celebrate six councils altogether. They all have their individual days of celebration, but there's one Sunday in which we celebrate six of them. But this Sunday, we set the Seventh Council aside, and we focus on that council in particular. Now, why would we do that? What is that council all about? It must be something very, very special or important. Well, this may surprise you. It may even sound anticlimactic. But this council had to deal with art. That's right. Art, holy images, icons. Now, why would artwork be set aside as a specially important council? It's because icons, which and the word itself means image, they convey as does so many other things in the church, in the church's art and architecture and liturgy, the church's prayer, they convey a fundamental truth. The fundamental truth is of the great mystery, the incarnation, that God, the invisible God, the second person of the Trinity, did indeed become completely enfleshed, completely visible, tangible, which made his invisible presence now visible and real to us. We could sort of take him in through our own senses. He was physical and spiritual all at the same time. Why is that significant? It is very significant because, for one thing, it's called the great mystery. It's not called the great mystery just for nothing. It means that everything in this creation— Everything in God's order now becomes infused with his presence. And that then gives us the one and only sacramental, correct vision of all of life, especially the human person. Secondly, to acknowledge through imagery. Imagery is a way of proving or proclaiming, affirming 
that God did take on human flesh. By affirming that, we also affirm and celebrate the fact that we were saved. That's the only way we could have been saved. And that's certainly a reason to celebrate, to set aside a special observance. God saved us by the fact that he took on what we were, ran it through the whole human drama, the worst of it, sin and death, and came out the other side. Victory, life, resurrection, ascension, and our eternal destiny, body and soul reunited, spiritualized, glorified in heaven forever. The only way that that could be done effectively is for God himself to do it and do it by coming down in the flesh, taking on our flesh, becoming his own creation and elevating it, divinizing it, making it sacramental. It always was, but it was like taking it to a new level, a new height through the incarnation. So this is why this particular council is set aside. And what happened at this council? Well, I'm going to read a little bit from the Synaxarian, also called the Prologue from Oak Ridge. And again, you've heard me, if you listen to this program for any amount of time, you've heard me highly recommend this series of, well, I have it in four volumes. Sometimes it comes in two. It's normally a four-volume or two-volume set. It goes through the entire liturgical year of the church, where it explains the significance of the feast days, but also has some wonderful meditations, a lot of historical anecdotes and so on. So it's something that also I recommend for families, for households, to gather around at least one meal a day or at some point and read from this so that especially children grow up with a deep understanding of not only these great events, these feast days, but of the people, the saints. Those need to be our heroes. Sometimes our children know more about Hollywood figures or heroes in video games than they do about the real heroes of life, the saints. So here's what the Synaxarian says. This council, this Seventh Ecumenical Council, was held in 787 in Nicaea in the time of Patriarch Tarasius. This council finally upheld the veneration of icons, expounding it from Holy Scripture, the witness of the Holy Fathers, and the examples of miracles in connection with the holy icons. Among other examples cited, the Cypriot bishop, Constantine, brought forward this one. A herdsman from the city of Constantia, driving his flock out to pasture one day, saw an icon of the Mother of God, adorned with flowers by the devout. Why give so much honor to a rock, said the herdsman, obviously brought up in iconoclasm, and threw his iron stave at the icon, damaging the right eye of the Mother of God. As soon as he left that spot, he stumbled over the same stave and put out his own right eye. Returning blinded to the city, he cried out tearfully that it was a punishment from the Mother of God. This council also decided that the relics of the martyrs be placed in the Antimensian. 367 fathers of the church took part in this council. May the Lord have mercy on us and save us by their prayers. You heard me mention Antimensian. The relics were to be put in an Antimensian. An Antimensian is a cloth that in the Latin rite would be the counterpart to the altar stone. This is where they would put a relic of a saint into the altar itself. Usually the altar was made of stone or marble. They would cut out a piece, put the, the relic in there, then put the stone back in. They would cover it over. So it's called an altar stone. In the Eastern churches, they use a cloth. The cloth has an icon of it, of the event of Christ being taken down from the cross. And sewn in that cloth is a relic of a saint. And that cloth, that antimensian, which means on top of the table, on top of the altar, is used on top of the altar 
like the altar stone was used on the Latin Rite altars. And it is consecrated, is blessed with the Holy Chrism by a bishop. And the bishop then distributes that antimension to every parish. It's a sign of that parish being under that bishop, being, in a sense, credible, bona fide. It's connected to that particular bishop. The bishop actually has a signature on the bottom of that antimension, and, of course, the relic is sewn into it. So every Byzantine church has an antimension on their altar, and it is on top of that antimension that the Eucharist is celebrated. In other words, the chalice is put on top of that antimension. This goes way back to the time of the early Christians when it was the practice that in the catacombs, for instance, they would celebrate the liturgy or the mass, the Eucharist, on top of the tombs of the martyrs. And so it became the custom in the church that the Eucharist must be celebrated always on top of the relics of the martyrs. In the West, it was the altar stone. In the East, it is an antimension. Although, at times, the Latin Rite Church has used the altar cloth as well, this antimension, especially, for example, out in battlefield celebrations, battlefield masses, when the priest goes out to the battlefield and celebrates Eucharist, maybe on the, 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 the back end of a jeep or something, and he stretches out that antimension, that cloth, the relic in it. So it's, it's very portable, although it always stays on top of the altar in Byzantine churches. But it can be very portable if the priest is going to celebrate liturgy elsewhere or, as I mentioned, in times of battle, like in the military. But it is an essential part of the liturgy of the church. It has an icon on it, an image. As I mentioned, images that we celebrate today at this celebration of the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787 AD is a special celebration, a special affirmation of the reality of God's love, of the Incarnation. And we're able to create icons of Christ because he himself became an icon. That's what, again, that's what image means. Icon means image. Image means icon. So Christ gave us permission. Sometimes there's a misreading, and this is what iconoclasm, you heard that word earlier. Iconoclasm means the belief that icons cannot be portrayed, that we cannot make images of Christ or the Virgin Mary, the saints. This is a misreading of a verse from the Old Testament where God told the Israelites he will not make graven images and worship them. You will only worship, of course, the real God, Yahweh. That's the first commandment. Well, that was a, something that was misread and misinterpreted over the centuries, and God couldn't possibly have meant that for Christians because God himself became an image in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we can make images of Christ, of the Virgin Mary, the saints, the angels, now, iconography does not make images, though, of God the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes you do see that, especially in Russian icons, but that's much, much later. The reason we don't make images of God the Father or of the Holy Spirit is because neither one became an image. They appeared in the form of, for instance, God the Father appeared by his voice, such as when Christ was baptized. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father's voice boomed out from the heavens. We see the Holy Spirit come down in a form of a dove. But only the second person of the Trinity became an image of a human person. And that's why we do not paint in iconography. We do not paint God the Father or the Holy Spirit only the second person of the Trinity. But we also can portray the Virgin Mary, angels, and saints. And why? Because God himself became an image. 
We're going to talk more about images and this Seventh Ecumenical Council when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We're celebrating the vindication of icons, the final vindication. This is in the 8th century. So it took centuries, actually, to work through this heresy of iconoclasm, which is seen in areas even to this day. And that's what happens, unfortunately, with heresies. They get disproven and defeated, but they tend to raise their ugly heads in other forms, and other ways. And we still have beliefs today that we, among certain religions and certain people, that we cannot make images of Jesus Christ. We can't make holy images. What we do with holy images is what those opponents don't understand. We do not worship the image. We simply honor the image. We give it reverence. And that reverence, that honor, is transmitted through the paint or the mosaic, the wood, the stone, to the person that it images. And that should not sound strange to us. That should actually sound very familiar. Do we not keep photographs of loved ones in our wallets, in our pockets? Soldiers would take pictures of loved ones and put in their helmets, keep it close to their heart as they went into battle. They would look at it, even kiss it. 
We look at an image of something, it, it helps us to feel connected, to be close to that image, whoever is being portrayed in that image. So much more so with icons, because icons are painted a certain way with a certain discipline of fasting, a certain discipline of the artwork itself, because it communicates the theology, the belief. They really do become a, a medium by which we can touch or connect in a real way with those whom the icons represent. It's a way of really making them present to us. I have to admit, I am an iconographer. My background is in art, and you can see some of my icon murals in our Church of Annunciation. If you go on our website, byzantinecatholic.com, that's byzantinecatholic.com, you can see the icons, the murals that I've done. And as an iconographer, I can tell you from a personal standpoint that when I am involved in the process, notice I say process, of painting an icon, that what I do is something that actually does bring me closer to the person that I'm painting. They really do become real, and here's why. First of all, I have to do a lot of research. I never paint an icon unless I research every rendition I can. I learn about that saint. Because in icons, there's lots of details. Everything's very purposeful. There's always a question, okay, why are they holding that scroll? Why is their hand this way? Why is the colors of their vestments that way? Why are they positioned this way? Everything is very purposeful. It's like when a composer writes down music. Everything he puts on that page, the musician has to take note of. It's significant. Same thing in icons. So that all has to be researched and understood. Then there is the process of painting, which involves fasting and prayer. It's basically a monastic discipline. Icons developed in monasteries. Then as you're painting, you're learning about the person. You're making them become real to you through the art. I mean, they really do become real to you. And so I feel a certain closeness to that person who I am depicting through the paint and the gold leaf. Now, they can be depicted through other materials too, wood or stone or mosaic. But the point is, is that this process really does draw you into the reality of that person or of that event. Oftentimes, of course, icons are depicting an event from the scripture, the life of a saint, and so on. And I can tell you it's a very real thing. I can tell you from a very personal standpoint that painting an icon does, in fact, do something to me and for me. It does draw me closer to the reality that is being depicted. Icons also, well, they're not like a craft. There are opportunities today for people to learn how to paint icons. There are icon workshops that are conducted by iconographers, and that's good. But I also have a certain caution about that. Icons are not say, for example, like a pottery class. You take a class for a few weeks or whatever, and you learn how to make something out of clay. And that's all fine. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. People should do that. Pottery and crafts, of course, have their own value, their own dignity. It's enjoyable. It's good. It's creative. All positive things. However, icons are not the same thing. Not exactly like a craft. So, When we approach the painting of icons, first and foremost, we should have, first of all, the faith. We should believe, we should be believers in what icons portray, in the faith that they transmit to us. We should pray and fast. We should live a life that is consistent with what the icons portray. In other words, the scripture, the teaching of the church, the way of Christ. But also, we should have an art background, to some degree at least, and sufficient degree, because iconography is an art form. Now, it may be enjoyable to paint an icon, like to make a piece of pottery, and it's okay, but we always have to remember that icons have their own particular dignity and character. 
They are the art of the church. And if you're going to really be serious about icons, you also have to have not only the spiritual disposition, but also the artistic disposition. Let's face it. If you wanted someone to, say, for example, sing or chant at a wedding or funeral, would you ask someone who doesn't know how to sing or maybe took one lesson that could sing one song? They only sang one song one time or something. Would you ask them? No, you would ask someone who you know is very qualified, who understands the chant, the prayers, a person of the church, and also has the talent, the ability, and they have developed that ability. Well, it should not be any different with the visual arts. The church has, for centuries, produced the finest artists and musicians and poets and writers and architects and philosophers and theologians because... The church points to and makes present that which is of the highest nature, because God is of the highest nature. So we're giving our best to God. You've all heard about the Sistine Chapel and works like that. They're unparalleled in their, in their greatness as art, but also they're full of iconology. Sometimes they're iconography or sometimes iconology, meaning that they transmit meaning, <laughs> the meaning behind the image, the theology, what we're supposed to be learning or being touched by, inspired by, through the medium of the painting. And when we think of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel or his Pietà, those are almost household terms. Everybody understands that. Why? Because it is of the highest nature artistically, but also spiritually and in terms of its iconology. So it all comes together It's not just spirituality, it's not just artistry, but it's, as always, it's both and. You bring that all together as an integrated whole, and then you have the highest form of art. The most beautiful music in the world is made by composers and musicians from the church and for the church, for God. Mankind is at his best. We are all at our best Civilization is at its best, and this is a historical fact, when it is doing something for God. Even the best scientists, not only artists, but scientists, when we're doing something for God and we apply our innate talent and talents that have been developed through schooling and education and discipline, when we bring those things to something, it turns out to be the best, the highest. And that's what the church is about. Because God is of the highest and of the best. God is true, good, and beautiful. And this is what we strive to do in the church, whether through icons or music, poetry, liturgy, architecture, even fiction, and even nonfiction, writing, stories, movies in our day and age. They are done always with the greatest dignity, the most beauty, the most inspiration the most impact when they're being done for the glory of God. Somehow that brings the best out of us. God gave us the ability to express his glory through the ability that we have in art and music and so on. That's why he gave us the five senses, so that we could hear God, taste God, see God, feel God, touch God, and express our experience of God with our gifts, through our hands, through our voice, through our whole body through things that we make and see and sing about. So this is why this Seventh Ecumenical Council is so important, why it's set aside. It's, in a sense, all-encompassing from the 
fact of the incarnation, the great mystery, to the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that God became an image, that we can and should make beautiful things to honor God, means of worship. They are means to make God and the saints and the gospel present to us in a very real way. We should make icons. We should have imagery. We should dedicate ourselves, the church, to the greatest and highest forms of art, whether it's music, architecture, visual arts, anything that has to do with glorifying God. This is what this council was about. And that's why today, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, it is set aside, set apart from all other councils. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Live Truth, Live Catholic with Trusted Series features and specials from EWTN Home Video. The EWTN Home Video highlight for October is the EWTN Family Celebration in Worcester, Massachusetts. Celebrate 100 years of Fatima. Order your DVD set at EWTNRC.com 24 hours a day, 7 days a week or call 1-800-854-6316. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!